It's often Jesus' adversaries, not his followers, who get him best. It's the sharpness, not the dullness of their vision that incites their opposition against Jesus. While the disciples were steeped in confusion, the demons unambiguously proclaimed, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. While the Nazarenes tried to kill Jesus just after the devil in the wilderness acknowledged him as the Son of God. And so too the Pharisees and the scribes spoke better than they knew when they labeled Jesus the friend of tax collectors and sinners. The title intended as a slur was in truth a tribute to his glory. And in fact, In bestowing that title upon him, the scribes and Pharisees pinpointed something very near to the identity of Jesus. He is indeed the friend of tax collectors and sinners. But what does it mean to say that Jesus is the friend of sinners? I suggest that the answer can be found in our passage this morning. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says... Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, what does the title, the friend of tax collectors and sinners, mean? Well, it means, first and foremost, that tax collectors and sinners were at home around Jesus. They considered him their friend. They found something in Jesus, it seems, that they found nowhere else, as opposed to the wider community, that is. Among the religious authorities, and most likely the townspeople as well, tax collectors and sinners were anything but at home. The prevailing attitude toward them is reflected in the words spoken against Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The mere association with these people was enough to warrant an accusation against Jesus' character. It's not hard to imagine then the type of shameful treatment tax collectors and sinners would be subjected to. Muttering comments, sneering looks, being avoided in public not unlike a drug dealer, or rather a drug addict, or a beggar might receive today. But not with Jesus. Again, the passage says, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Far from being repelled by him, like bugs to a light, tax collectors and sinners were irresistibly drawn to the person of Jesus. And I think the reason is that unlike the wider community, among Jesus, it felt that he was completely unaware of their sinfulness. Everywhere they went, their sin hounded them. It defined them even. Their identity constituted by the name sinner. But in the company of their friend, it was not thrown in their face, nor was it the unspoken elephant in the room. Rather, it was a non-factor. 
Jesus dealt with them, not on the basis of their sin, but on an entirely different basis altogether, the basis of grace. That grace, however, it did not sit well with the gatekeepers of righteousness. In fact, it was a scandal to them. In that society, eating and drinking with others was a matter of social acceptance. One admitted to their table only those who they could endorse as honorable and upright members of society. Breaking bread and raising glasses with sinners then was not only outside the bounds of society's established norms, but deviant, perceived as acceptance, approval even, of their sinful lifestyles. Hence the slur, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But that's simply grace, isn't it? Grace laughs at society's acceptable norms and customs. It utterly disregards one's righteousness or lack thereof. Saint or sinner, Pharisee or tax collector, it matters not. All are welcome at Jesus' table. And for some, this grace, in particular the tax collectors and sinners, it was a cause for rejoicing, but for others, it was a cause of offense. And this whole scene is very reminiscent of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard that Jesus tells in Matthew 20. It's 16 verses long, but let me read the thing in its entirety for you. It says, or Jesus says rather, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Be something similar to someone looking for laborers going to Home Depot in the morning looking for help. It says, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, Each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. 
Jesus' parable speaks of his grace for all. It does not matter whether one has squeaked in at the 11th hour or whether one has been there since the dawning of the day, all receive the same measure of grace. The Pharisees, in our passage, have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day, so to speak. They feel it's only right that their payment reflect that. The tax collectors, yet the tax collectors and sinners, for all their inactivity and waste coming in at the 11th hour, receive the same wage. Jesus receives them and he eats with them. And when the Pharisees confront Jesus about this perceived injustice, notice that our passage in Luke 15 and the passage in Matthew 20 both refer to these characters grumbling. When they address him, he responds, Is it not lawful for me to do, with what is my own, uh, to do, what, to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Their eye, the scribes and Pharisees, is bad because the Lord's eye is good. The Pharisees are ultimately grumbling at grace when they see Jesus receiving tax collectors and sinners. They want things to operate on the basis of their own efforts. They have put their hands to the plow, disciplining themselves for the sake of righteousness. Surely, they have merited uh, something more than the others. Surely their standing should be higher than the tax collectors and sinners, but it's not. The righteous and the unrighteous receive the same measure from Jesus. Now, we'll have much more to say about this next time in the parable of the prodigal son, specifically the older brother who sees his father's lavish welcome to the son who went off and wasted everything and says, I've obeyed you this whole time. And you've never thrown me a party, right? There's that same wanting to be measured by his own righteousness. We'll cover that later. But the point is, we should celebrate God's grace for others, not grumble over it. If we're willing to accept grace, we must celebrate God's grace in other people's lives. The Pharisees complained, but Jesus said to them, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So you have the Pharisees grumbling and Jesus says, but heaven is rejoicing. You're on the wrong side of things. Now, we'll come to that later. But in response to the Pharisees' slur against him, Jesus tells yet another parable. And the parable really is given as a justification of his behavior, that he receives sinners and eats with them. As we've seen, the Pharisees believe his association with sinners is inappropriate at best and sinful at worst. Jesus, therefore, uses this parable to prove just the opposite. Luke 15, verses 3 through 10, it says, So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which he has lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the parable proceeds in two parts. Jesus compares his table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners to a shepherd going after a lost sheep, and then to a woman leaving nothing unturned to find her lost coin. He opens both parts of the parable in the form of a question, saying first, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which he has lost until he finds it? And then again, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins, And loses one, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. So Jesus, as he often does, appeals here to basic human behavior. We have all felt the urge to find something that we have lost, whether it's something as trivial as our keys, or something as serious as our children. In fact, the more important the object, the more diligent the search. Just so. Jesus' association with sinners is likened to a shepherd roaming the hills looking for his lost sheep and a woman exploring every nook and cranny of a house to find, the lost, to find her lost coin. And so if a shepherd must go after his sheep and a woman her coin, how much more must the Christ go after the lost sons and daughters of Israel, as it will be later said in Jesus's encounter with Ezekiel, or sorry, with uh, Zacchaeus, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And so, in the Lord's example, in Him going after sinners, in Him trying to bring them back into the fold, we find echoes of a wonderful passage in Ezekiel thirty-four. In that passage, the Lord rebukes Israel's careless and self-serving leaders, saying to them, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not bound back. Nor have you sought the lost, but with force and with severity, you have dominated them. Therefore, in response to their delinquency, the Lord promises to deliver his sheep by his own hand. Verses 11 and 12 of that same chapter, it says, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places from which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. So the Pharisees, by refusing to even countenance sinners, had become like Israel's negligent shepherds. They fed their own egos while many in the flock were diseased and broken and lost. 
Jesus, however, is the one spoken of in Ezekiel 34. He is the Lord come to deliver his sheep from the places where they have been scattered. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. But the aim of Jesus' search, and this is what the Pharisees failed to understand, was was the repentance of sinners. The aim of Jesus' search was the repentance of sinners. Again, he concludes the parable by saying, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He's looking for these lost sheep to bring them to repentance. So, Jesus' welcome of tax collectors and sinners was not a toleration of sin or even moral ambivalence, but just the opposite. In eating and drinking with sinners, Jesus brought them out of their sin. And now in this respect, the contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus could not be more stark. And we must understand that contrast between them. The Pharisees, and it's quite ironic, in all their apparent concern for purity, served not to eliminate sin, not to get rid of it, but to reinforce it. That is, their policy of distancing themselves from tax collectors and sinners only drove tax collectors and sinners further into their sinful lifestyles. But in truth, that's what it was intended to do. The Pharisees had no concern for the repentance of sinners, really. Their isolationist tactics were not a part of some grand scheme to bring the lost home, but to put themselves on a pedestal, to exalt themselves in relation to the ones whom they must separate themselves from. And truth be told, so it is today. More often than not, those who go on about the sins of others are not doing it out of a genuine concern for righteousness and justice, but some other motive. But let's leave the question of motives for another day. We cannot judge the hearts of men. Rather, let's resist railing against the sins of others on more practical grounds. It's simply bad practice to do so. And here's why. The one who makes others sin, their preoccupation, dealing in guilt and shame, undermines their own cause. That type of rhetoric does not free people from darkness, but it keeps them in it. Remember our very first parents, Adam and Eve. When they came to awareness, to an awareness of sin, what was their first response? It was to cover themselves and to hide. That's the way shame works. The fear of being exposed, of being seen for one for who one really is, it drives a person into darkness, away from the judgment and condemnation of others. They have to seek shelter, secrecy, away from judgment. Thus, when we shame sinners, however genuine our concern for righteousness may be, it only serves to push them further into darkness. It reinforces that boundary. It keeps them trapped in their sinful lifestyle. The removal of shame, therefore, is the first obstacle to be overcome 
on the way to repentance. That's the first thing that has to be removed. And therefore around Jesus, and this might sound overly sentimental and therapeutic, two things I avoid like the plague, sinners felt safe. They felt safe around Jesus. He removed their shame and thus made a way for them to step into the light. And here's the point. He he removed their shame by being unashamed of them. Jesus, think of these instances in Scripture. The woman, the, the, the prostitute, the sinful woman, the passage calls her, who throws herself at Jesus' feet. And Simon the Pharisee is thinking, if this man was a prophet, he would know that this woman is a sinner. And yet Jesus embraces her. He welcomes her. And he shames the Pharisees for their treatment of her. Or think of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, despised Zacchaeus, who went around, ran around uh, robbing people of their money. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree, for I am staying at your house tonight. And it says, they grumbled that he would do this with Zacchaeus. Or think of the woman caught in adultery, the most scandalous story of all, one that was even tried uh, to remove from Scripture because of how scandalous it was. The Pharisees bring her and say, this woman was caught in adultery. What are you going to do? And Jesus dismisses all of them and tells the woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so here's the point, guys. If our, if our concern is to eliminate sin, right? if our desire is to see righteousness established, then we will not browbeat sinners but welcome them. Because that's the only way to destroy sin. That's the only way to overcome it. That's it. And so whatever this means then, it's not about going soft on sin. In fact, it's just the opposite. In showing compassion to sinners and tax collectors, in showing them empathy, in welcoming them, we are treating sin with the utmost seriousness. For we know that the only way sin is overcome is through love. As the Holy Scripture says, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. This is how we deal with it. Now that said, this does not preclude us from calling sin, sin. To welcome and befriend sinners does not necessarily mean that we must paper over Jesus' call to repentance or abandon our own moral integrity. It doesn't mean that in any way. And I guess the mistake that's all, e- all too easy to make is putting truth and love in opposition to one another. The one who is valiant for the truth of the gospel, for biblical ethics, and for the like, is probably more prone to depreciate the power of love. But the other, more naturally compassionate and tender-hearted, is more prone to leniency, to bypass hard words, to bypass Jesus' call to discipleship and the cost that that entails. Now, neither is more virtuous than the other. They both lack what the other has. Truth and love are not enemies. They are wedded together in Jesus Christ who himself is the friend of tax collectors and sinners and the truth itself. 
And so I've used this example before, but I do, I really believe it's the best model for speaking the truth in love. It comes from the conversion of Rosaria Butterfield. Again, I've told you about her story before. She was a self-described leftist lesbian professor. In her Christianity Today article, My Trainwreck Conversion, Rosaria talks about an article she published in the local newspaper. She says, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. The article generated many rejoiners, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail, one for fan mail. And then she says, but one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And so Rosaria goes on to detail how, unlike the other letters of opposition, Ken's was kind and inquiring. In her book, she says, it was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received. And she goes on to say, initially not knowing how to respond to it, she threw it away. Only later that night to go back into the recycling bin and pull it out. And to do so many other times, and it just sat there on her desk. And finally she addressed it. And she says a little bit later in the article, that Christians who mocked me on Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was as clear as blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. Listen to what she says. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me as a blank slate. And I imagine, I imagine that's how tax collectors and sinners felt around Jesus. Finally, for the first time, heard, valued, and welcomed. All that shame, all that guilt beginning to dissolve away in his presence. Rosaria goes on to detail her engagement with the scriptures. It's inspiring to hear how the scriptures just worked on her over a two-year process. She talks about her experiences at church how she would try to muster up the courage to go and then sit outside and just stalk all the people walking into the church. And she talks about her conversations with Ken and Floyd, how Ken firmly yet gently spoke the truth to her. There's one in particular where she talks about after Ken asked to go to her university and and, and give a lecture in her class on um, the Bible as literature. She firmly said no, and then he said, well, will you listen to it? And she said, yes. And so he went and gave this message to her. And she said she came out of it thinking, if this is true, everything I believe is a lie. Everything I know is is all false. And yet there's Ken providing the opportunity, the space where that message could be heard and received. And so ultimately, Rosaria responded um, to the Lord's call. And still one line from the book sticks with me. She says, Ken and Floyd did not identify with me. They listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. 
They didn't identify with me. They identified with Christ, and they were willing to walk the long journey with me in Christian compassion. All right. Amen. And it's, it's in that context of friendship and compassion that the gospel message with its harsh words about the human state, its true words about the human state and about our sinfulness, and then its offer of forgiveness becomes most powerful. And so as Ken and Floy, and more importantly as the Lord Jesus himself, have shown us, this is how the lost are found. This is how we bring them into the fold. And there's many ways we can put that into practice. But I want to draw this all home um, to, to a conclusion by addressing our lives. And again, the charge is, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And the word receives is probably better translated as welcome. In fact, that's how it's translated in some Bibles. Because as opposed to merely receiving, welcome, welcoming carries with it connotations of acceptance and embrace. In the Greek, it's the word prosdekomai, and it means something like to have goodwill toward. In the New Testament, it's found in a few other places. The first is Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Crankeia, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. The second instance is Philippians chapter 2, verse 29. Speaking of Epaphroditus, the Apostle Paul says, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. So, the same type of generous reception the churches are to show faithful workers in the ministry with all joy, holding them in high regard, is the same type of reception that Jesus extends to tax collectors and sinners. It speaks not to a mere reception uh, or a mere toleration or a welcoming, but at a distance. But instead, it's a kind, a welcoming embrace. Again, that of a friend. And so here's the point. May known in Jesus' actions then is God's very heart toward sinners. You and I. He does not chide them or berate them. But what does he do? He welcomes them. God's baseline disposition towards sinners is not so much wrath and loathing as it is kindness and pity. Jesus is the friend of sinners. But we must appropriate those words not only for others, right? This is not something that we just have to practice in relation to others, but something that we must know for ourselves. It's easy enough to accept Jesus' welcome for others, but it's quite harder to accept it for ourselves. I know many who struggle with this, as I myself have, all throughout my Christian life. There are few things harder to convince a guilty conscience of than that the Lord does not turn away from them, but that He welcomes them. That He is indeed the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Like our first parents, our own guilt and shame, it drives us into the darkness away from Christ and away from forgiveness. In fact, in the darkness, our understanding of God becomes warped. His love for sinners recedes further and further into the distance till 
at last it seems there is no love at all, but only condemnation. One comes to church and is even afraid to, to, to really engage in worship because they feel so unworthy. One reads their Bible and can't do, can't do it without feeling nothing but condemned. One has a hard time engaging in the Christian life because they feel they can't. They feel God won't accept them, even believers. And that is the devil's lie to keep us from Christ. Instead, we must hear and believe the words, all tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Coming near to him. And this man receives sinners and eats with them. Yes, even in your sin, he welcomes you. He receives you. We turn toward him for forgiveness, even the one that we've sinned against. So I want to just kind of draw this to a conclusion with these words from um, uh, a Puritan. His name is Thomas Goodwin. He says, Here is comfort concerning such infirmities in that your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Christ, so far from being provoked against your sin, all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. The greater the misery is, the more pity when the party is beloved. Now all the miseries, now of all the miseries, sin is the greatest. And while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such also. And he, loving your person and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall and only upon the sin to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his affection shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin um, as under any other affliction. And he says, therefore, fear not. And so what is Thomas Goodwin saying? Again, he's articulating what we tried to articulate at the very beginning of the message. He's trying to say what it means for Jesus to be the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Our sins, as his beloved bride, provoke him to pity more than wrath. If his anger is ignited, it's not against our person, but the sin itself. And of course, the Father deals out discipline, which we need. But as it pertains to us, he only gives us mercy and grace. And that mercy and grace is what leads us to repentance.